today God is speaking your name. Your name may not be Peter, and it might be. It might be Sally or Susan, it might be John, it might be Steve, it might be Mike, it might be Michelle. Today God is speaking your name, He's calling your name because He wants you to understand His grace. He wants you to understand what the empty tomb really means and what it's all about. I've been praying specifically for this day that our ears would hear this message new. For many in this room, you've heard this message more than once about the empty tomb and what it means. For many, this is the first time. But I hear everyone, I pray that everyone hears it fresh today. I was listening to a Bible teacher that some of you are familiar with, a preacher in Atlanta, Georgia, by the name of Andy Stanley the other day. And he said the way to really understand something is to go back to its starting point. Go back to where it all began. Everything he says has a starting point. Every job or business has a starting point. This church has a starting point. November 7 of 2004, I remember it uh, very well as we started this church in the elementary school, Middlethorpe Elementary School. Every living thing has a starting point. We have a little puppy at home that's about five months old. I know he had a starting point. Now he's driving my life crazy as we learn how to train a puppy. You think about starting points. Everything has a starting point. You had a starting point. Whether your mom and dad purposely planned you or they said, oh, you're the accident of the family. You had a starting point. And that starting point began. Romances have a starting point. Our faith has a starting point. A basis of where it all began. For many of us, a starting point of faith was what our parents told us was true. For many of us, it was what my mom told me or what my dad told me. Maybe for some in this room, it was what the priest told me. My mom took us to church because we were going to listen to what the priest was going to tell us about, and that was your starting point. For some in here, it was your grandparent, maybe your grandma or your grandpa because you were raised by them, and they, they were your starting point. For some of you, you were raised in a family that just said, hey, the Bible says it, we believe it. And so we just take it on faith because that's what the Bible says. See, when you were young, that worked for a foundation of truth. It worked to say, well, my mom and dad tell me this, and so it's true. Our children, as they grow older, we know at some point they start to question the faith that we taught them. And just saying, well, the Bible says this is true, just take it, doesn't work sometimes for us as we get a little bit older. Or just saying, well, the priest taught me this, or my grandma taught me this, or my mom taught me this, or my friend who took me to church taught me this. We have to go through a wrestling in our own spirit that our faith becomes our own. How do we know what is true? How do we know this thing, this resurrection about God is true? How do we know it? Is it just because mom said or grandma said or a friend said? Or is there some evidence that can prove that to us? Believe it or not, I think the apostle Peter had some very similar questions or same questions. Peter had always been a pretty trusting guy. He had been one of the first to sign up to follow Jesus. And he took Jesus at his word. And he got a bunch of other people. We know that Peter was kind of that strong leader. He got a bunch of other people then to follow along. But then, Peter, I'm sure his faith was questioned because Jesus was put on trial and he was killed and everything in Peter's world came crashing down. Wait a minute, you're supposed to save the world and now you're dead, you're gone. And if Jesus was so loving and he's in control, why had he left Peter and the other disciples alone all by themselves in this crazy mess? I'm sure there was a lot of questions. 
Peter's struggle of faith got so bad, he outright denied being a follower of Jesus. Weren't you with Jesus? No, no, not me. Aren't you one of those disciples? No, not me. We know you were with him. No, no, that, that wasn't me. Completely turned his back on Jesus. Everything changed for, him, changed for him on that early Sunday morning, though. The book of John, chapter 20, says early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciples, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. I guess Peter was a slow runner. I would be probably the Peter boat, the slow runner trying to catch up to everybody else. He, but he bent over and looked at, in at the strips of linen lying there but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Peter walked into that tomb discouraged and defeated and doubting. My Savior, Jesus, is dead. The one who was supposed to save this world. He walked out, though, as one of the most important leaders of the Christian movement. And from this point on, the disciples are going to look to Peter to lead them along the way. What, what changed it? It wasn't some flash of new insight into Jesus' teaching, like, oh yeah, this new teaching that took place. It wasn't that. He came face to face with a place that should have a body in it, but the body was gone. And then I think he starts connecting the dots. Oh yeah, Jesus told us he was going to die, and Jesus told us he was going to rise again, and now he's really done it. He really is the Savior of the world. He really is the King of kings. He really is the Lord of lords. I, I want us to put ourselves in Peter's place this morning. Because I think many of us are just like Peter. You have questions. Some of the things don't add up. You may even be a Christian and still have questions and go, some of this just doesn't make sense. I'm not connecting all the dots. Maybe you're like Peter. Maybe you feel uh, that he's disappointed you. That God has let you down in some way. Maybe you're like Peter because you're thinking, I've disappointed him. I've turned my back. I have failed. I have, I have messed up. Peter had denied Jesus so many times that he felt like maybe his relationship was beyond repair. And quite possibly you sit here today and you're like, I've screwed up so many times. There's no way God would ever welcome me back into the family. But you're here because a friend or a family member said, just come. Just come with me. I want you to experience what Peter experienced. I want to confront you with the fact of the empty tomb in two ways this morning. One, I'm going to explain briefly how we can know that Jesus raised from the dead. For those who are in the church and you've been Christian, this is good information to have because when you have these discussions, you go, oh yeah, let me give you another thought on it. Maybe those who are questioning, maybe some of these things will answer your questions. And then I want, to go to, I want us to go into Peter and look at Peter and let Peter explain the significance of the empty tomb. Let's look at some facts about the empty tomb. Believe it or not, that tomb was empty that morning when Peter got there. It's actually a fairly agreed-upon fact. There's not many scholars or theologians or 
scientists who debate that. Obviously not everyone believes that Jesus rose from the dead, but just about every scholar agrees that there was a man by the name of Jesus, that he was executed by the Romans, that he was buried, and on the third day, the tomb where he had been laid was found empty. Just about everybody. I mean, it's really not a substantial point of disagreement where people say, no, that tomb was, was not empty. Most people say, yeah, it was empty. But the question for debate is how did that tomb get empty? How'd that happen? I think there's kind of three options to consider. Theory one is that somebody stole the body. That's probably one of the most popular theories that people throw out there and say somebody stole the body. The question here becomes then, who did it? And for a suspect, you need a means and you need a motive. And I think there's possibly three possible suspects. One is the Romans. They could have been the ones. The Romans certainly had the means of stealing the body. I mean, Pilate had a had a garrison of Roman soldiers put in front of the tomb. A garrison was a unit of 16 soldiers who stood around the clock with four standing. The other 12 would then surround them in a semicircle and they would rotate, taking turns, four standing at a time. They could have done it, but what would be their motive? Why would they want to do that? I mean, they were the ones who had him killed. You say, well, maybe their motive was just to pull off a joke. Well, I don't think they were being any kind of joke because Pilate had ordered that, there's, that the official seal, Roman seal, be placed on Jesus' tomb, which meant that anyone who disturbed the seal did so, threatening their own lives with death. So why would they mess with it? They're not going to play a prank like that. Roman soldiers knew what would have happened. Suspect number two would be the Jews. I mean, what would have been their motive? The only motive I could come up with them for stealing the body is that somehow to preempt the disciples, to steal the body before they did, so that when the disciples claimed that, that he resurrected, they would produce the body and say, uh-uh, we got it right here. Because the Jews did not believe in a risen Jesus. But they never did that. And they certainly could have been able to. That would have been the fastest way to shut the disciples up, to say, ah, uh, disciples, you're claiming a resurrection, but no, we have the body, this whole thing's a hoax. Suspect number three would be the disciples. How'd they sneak past the garrison, though? Sixteen Roman soldiers. And, and that's where the detail of the neatly folded linen cloth comes in. The linen cloths are still folded, laying in there neatly. I mean, robberies are usually done in a hurry, and robbers don't put the house back together. They destroy it, take what they want, and they get out. Same thing, if you're going to steal Jesus' body, well, let's get his body out of here and leave everything else lie. And think about this. Would stealing Jesus' body really have served their purposes? I mean, in a religious hoax, the leaders gain some measurable asset like power or money or sex or something through the deception. What did this new testimony get the disciples? Their testimony gained them no power. I mean, for their whole lives, they were pursued to the point of death. Every single one of them died a cruel death. Every single one was tortured and killed because of their confession of what they believed about Jesus. Their testimony gained them no money. And the apostles were notoriously poor, and any money they did get, they even gave it away to help out other people, as the stories are told about them. They didn't, their testimony didn't gain them any kind of sexual pleasure. They taught that sex was only be between, experienced between two people in a monogamous marriage. So they didn't cohort this hoax for money or sex or power. So what would have been their motive? They taught Christians to live joyfully without power, money, or sexual gratification because they said the, the, the kingdom is not of this world, but the kingdom is of the world that is to come. And they knew they could put up with the misery that was here and the misery that is of today because they knew what the future held. Would they have taught that and lived that way themselves if they knew it was a hoax 
And if someone had stolen the body or if they had stolen the body, they wouldn't have given their lives for this cause. So the theory that someone stole the body just fails to be convincing at all. There's no one who would have had the means or the motive. Consider theory number two is that Jesus never really died. Some people will claim that. Some writers will claim that. Maybe Jesus didn't quite die on a cross. He just passed out and when they put him in a tomb, he revived. And then somehow he moved that big rock and got all the soldiers out of the way too. He then appeared to a few disciples, convinced a few of them that he resurrected. There's a number of problems with this theory beyond the fact of straight stupidity. Because really this answer holds no water whatsoever. See, the Romans were experts in crucifixion and execution. And they knew when someone was dead. Roman law actually said that if they pulled a man down before he died, they could be killed in the same manner. You think those soldiers didn't understand death? They're like, I'm not going to be the next one on the cross. In fact, just to make sure, they pierced his side, went through his heart with a spear, and the gospel account says that blood and water came out. Now that's a very significant fact for us to understand, because let me tell you what's significant, is that medically they didn't understand what was going on, but now we do, and what they wrote with blood and water being separated. See, as after someone has died, blood in their body begins to clot so that the blood separates from the watery serum, and to have seen blood and water would indicate that Jesus' body was dead prior to the spear going through his side. They didn't even know about that medically. That was discovered sometime later in our medical growth and understanding the body. It's a medical verification of Jesus' death, the significance of which they would have not known when they included the detail in Scripture. Here's a second problem with the theory they just fainted. Jesus had been beaten prior to the crucifixion which was very uncommon. Usually, beatings were their own punishment. The person who received the beating, remember that Pilate had intended to beat Jesus instead of crucifying, but the crowds are the ones who cried out and said, crucify him, crucify him. The crowds are the ones who said, release Barabbas and put Jesus on the cross. And Cicero said that the Roman beatings by themselves often ended in death for the victims. Cicero said that there was extreme losses of blood, sometimes disembowelment, and even ribs flying off of their cages because of the beatings that were so gruesome and so torturous. This is probably, probably why Jesus actually died before the other two men on the cross when he was crucified. They hadn't endured the scourging. Their body hadn't gone through the punishment. The point is, if anyone were to survive a crucifixion, it wouldn't have been someone who had been whipped and brutally lost that much blood. Virtually impossible. And there's a third problem. If Jesus had survived... How did he move that stone and slip past the Roman guards, 16 of them? How would he do that? Impossible. And then in his battered, weakened condition, go and convince his disciples, listen, I rose from the dead. And so that doesn't hold any water. Theory number two, that Jesus really didn't die, I don't think seems like a very good one. There's a third theory, and that's Jesus really did rise from the dead. Truth is, we know it's not a theory. It's actually truth. It's by far the simplest explanation, and I think it's the most compelling. Jesus resurrected, appeared to his disciples, commissioned them to go around the world, testifying this fact, even to cost them their life, and they did that, and they actually did it gladly because they had seen the resurrected Jesus with their own eyes. Well, if that's the simplest explanation, and it's the most compelling, you must ask the question, why is it not universally accepted? Why do people not just say, well, that's so compelling and there's all this evidence, why not accept it? Let me answer that with words from the German philosopher Wolfhart Pannenberg. 
He said the evidence for Jesus' resurrection is so strong that nobody would question it except for two things. First, it is very, a very unusual event. And second, if you believe it happened, you have to change the way you live. So if you really believe in a resurrection, that means we're confronted with the truth. Do I change something? An unusual event. Some people just don't want to consider a supernatural explanation. I mean, ironically, they do this in the name of good history and science as if taking those disciplines seriously means refusing to even consider miraculous evidence. But closing yourself off to certain types of explanations, no matter how compelling they are, is the definition of closed-mindedness, would you not say? We should be open to the explanations and definitions. Others do it, Panenberg says, because if it's true, they have to change the way they live. If Jesus rose from the dead, that means he is Lord over everything. He's Lord over morality. He's Lord over salvation. He's Lord over politics. He's Lord over history. He's Lord over the United States. He's Lord over our government. And he's Lord over you and me. For many, that's a hard truth to face. Adolphus Huxley, the man who coined the term agnostic, admitted this much. He said, I had motives for not wanting the world to have a meaning. For myself, as well as most of my contemporaries, the philosophy of meaningless was a philosophy of liberation, and the liberation we saw was liberation from what was Christian morality. And so he came up with the term agnostic. Bart Ehrman says the main reason we won't really seriously consider whether this could be true, is because the world has so much suffering in it. There's no way God could have raised Jesus from the dead and left so much suffering in this world. And so sometimes we have some of our own excuses. That's not an honest consideration, though, of the evidence. It's actually a dismissal of the evidence because you've made up your mind it could not be true because of some other reason that usually ties to our own thoughts or our own feelings. Let me ask you a question. Have you really taken the time lately in your life to consider the evidence on its own terms? Not, not some years ago and say, well, I thought about it years ago. Have you thought about it lately, how true it is of what we worship and who we worship and why we worship and celebrate the resurrected Savior Jesus? See, for example, you say, well, if the resurrection is true, why is this world in such a mess? Or you might say, why did my life turn out like this? Or why am I walking through this struggle? Or God, why aren't you more involved in this earth? If you showed up every once in a while, it would help. Or why are there so many different religions? Or maybe you just don't want anybody telling you what's right or what's wrong morally. I want to challenge you today to be open-minded enough to consider the evidence on its own terms. To walk with Peter in that tomb. Because the resurrection for Peter meant three things and it mean the same thing for us. Very significant was the empty tomb. One is that Jesus was who he said he was. See, if Jesus really rose from the dead, then Jesus was who he said he was, regardless of how contradicted Peter's perceptions may come. In Acts 4... Peter gets into a really interesting argument with a bunch of academics and theologians and they're saying that there was no way that Jesus the Messiah could have risen from the grave and they gave excuse A and excuse B and excuse C and all the smart people of the day agree that it couldn't be true and Peter's reply in Acts 4, he just answered them and said, whether it is right to listen to you rather to God, you must not judge. We cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. I mean, what was Peter saying? In other words, he was saying, look, I understand you all are smarter than me. I understand you all have the degrees hanging on the walls. I understand that. But then on the other hand, 
We know this guy came back from the dead, and no offense to you, this coming back from the dead trumps your degrees and you're graduating in your top class. Because I've looked and I've seen that the tomb was empty. Let me ask you to go on a thought experiment with me for a moment. Take whatever objection to faith holds you back. Whatever it may be. And for some you say, I have no objections, nothing's holding me back. For some in the room you say, I have a few. And some you may say, I have many. Whatever it may be, there are so, maybe one of your objections, there's so many different religions. Maybe it's there's too much pain in this world, such a mess. Maybe it's the Bible says that homosexuality is wrong. How can the Bible hate people like that? Or, or suppose that, that you've been the first one in the empty tomb now. Take those objections and go to the tomb. Where Jesus says to you, I am who I say I am. You're there and the tomb is empty. And Jesus says, I am who I am. But, I'm not going to answer your questions right now. I will later. Would you be willing to suspend your objections? To live with some unanswered questions until then? You say, ah, but see, that's the problem. I can't go back and see him. Yes, but even today, the evidence is strong enough today to reach a certain conclusion about it. The breakdown is not in the insufficiency of the evidence, but in some prejudice that keeps us from considering it's on its own terms. Just like a mom and dad would say to their child, I want you to do this, I want you to do that. Why? Well, because I just told you so. Because I'm mom and dad. Because I'm dad or because I'm mom. Because what? We have our best interest of our children at heart, and God has our best interest at heart, and sometimes we just have to take things on faith. Here's the truth. It takes faith to believe, but our faith is based on some rather strong evidence, which I've shared with you this morning. I love this definition of faith. Faith occurs when the unexplainable confronts the undeniable. So you have a questions you think that are unexplainable. The resurrection is a miracle, however, that is undeniable. We can try to say it didn't happen, and morally people do that. Scientifically, people try to do it. And one of two things happens. You'll refuse to even consider the evidence until God explains it himself, as if you refuse to consider the possibility that there's a God who runs the universe, whose ways and understanding are higher than your ways or higher than my ways, or you'll humble yourself before God and say, okay, God, I'll consider the evidence on his own terms, realizing you have your ways of running the universe, which at first don't make sense to me, but I'll still trust you. And all of us could probably say at times, it doesn't make sense to me what I see in this world, but I still can trust him. See, faith is not having all of your questions answered now. It's wrestling with the unexplainable, knowing that the unexplainable has an explanation on the basis of the resurrection. We pride ourselves on being sometimes that, that doubting person or that questioning person. Are you willing to, in light of the resurrection, doubt your own doubts? Set them aside and over just say, okay, some of my doubts may not be real. Put my faith in Jesus. Because the resurrection, Peter realized his past no longer defined him. See, Peter felt like he had let Jesus down in his relationship with Jesus because he had turned his back on him. But here is what Peter says in, in his book, First Peter. He says, through the resurrection, we are born again into a living hope kept in heaven for us. There are two things in there that are totally changed how you see yourself. Born again and a living hope. Let me start with living hope. Your hope is whatever you believe gains you acceptance before God. Most people believe that God's acceptance of them is based on how good they are. 
Have I been good this week? Have I been good that week? Do I lead a pretty good life? I hope that I've been good enough. I cannot tell you how many times I've said to somebody, where are you at in Jesus or will you be in heaven? I hope so. I've been a pretty good person. I try to be good. How well then, you got to ask yourself, how well do you keep the tenets? How well do you keep up your, your good standard? And that may work fine for you until you fail like Peter. Until you, you stumble and fall, and then you start wondering, how good is good enough? What is the scale that I have to attain? And you start realizing the scale will never work. The gospel is that Christ earned our acceptance in our place. He paid the penalty for your sin and my sin. That's the gospel message. He lived the life. He died the death. The resurrection is God's declaration that He has accepted Jesus' payment on your behalf. In other words, He's paid your bill. He's taken the penalty. In the resurrection, He declared that Jesus' payment was sufficient, and now Jesus stands alive by the throne of God, alive testifying to that fact. And that's why Peter says, I have a living hope kept for me in heaven. That's safety. The living Jesus stands there as your acceptance and my acceptance into heaven. Whenever an accusation is brought against me, a reason should be, I should be rejected from God's presence. Jesus says, I paid for that sin. I took care of that problem. But let me share a bold truth with you this morning. And I don't say this to be arrogant. I know if I drop dead on this stage today or if I drop dead driving home in a car accident, I know I'm in heaven. I have no doubts about that because of what Jesus has done on the cross. Boy, if I looked at my own life and I had to measure up my accomplishments, I would have a lot of doubts. I'd have a whole lot of concerns. And you can have that exact same confidence when you understand the resurrection. See, in the resurrection, we have a living hope that is no longer based on me. It's no longer based on us. Peter says in the resurrection, I am born again, which means God has started the process of a new life in me. The power of the resurrection turned Peter, a Jesus-denying a Jesus coward, into Peter, the rock of the church. The one who turned his back on Jesus, he said, now I'm going to use you to be the rock of my church. That same power can work inside of you. It can work inside of you. This church is filled with people who have stories of a past filled with most tragic mistakes. There are some in this church who have been on drugs. There are some who have been unfaithful to their spouses. There have been some who have been kicked out of school. There are some who spent time in jail. There are some who have been filled with bitterness and racism and hate. But God changed them. And not because they were decent people who needed a second chance, but because they were dead people whom God has made alive. He can do that in you. He can do that in us. Do you feel like you're too messed up for God to be interested in you? That's, that your mistakes maybe are too severe, that your addictions are, are too strong. God breathed life into a new body. He breathed courage into cowardly Peter. He breathed love into a murderous Paul. When you believe, he can bring new life into you. Let me ask you, is your Christianity, is it just the same old, same old, or is it breathing new life day by day? Is the life you lead today, does it feel like, man, it's kind of dead? The way you get life breathed into you is through God. His future was secure, Peter learned that in the empty tomb. The resurrection says we now have an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. 
Never perish, spoil for you. One of the things you learn as you get older is that everything spoils and fades. I mean, rather it's riches. You know, if you start gaining money and all of a sudden uh, you have some money maybe in the bank account saved up, it seems like something breaks, the car breaks down, the air conditioning goes bad. Or for some folks, I got some money saved up and then you started having kids. And you're like, where's all my money at? It's now all gone because it's going and taking care of your kids. Inevitably, it seems like money comes in and flows out like water going through your hands. If it's your health, you understand that your health fails you. And as you get older, you really start to realize that. I had a conversation with someone the other day. They said, man, I was great until I got in my 30s. I'm about 35. It really got hard now. I'm in my 40s. And they're like, man, everything hurts. I understand that. I used to play basketball and I could play basketball for five, six, seven hours a day. Get up the next day and do it again. Get up the next day and do that again. If I did that now, you all be visiting me in a hospital. Because the body aches and hurts. Can't hold on to any of it. The life of faith and unbelief are never more contrasted than in how the believer and unbeliever approach that reality. Bertrand Russell, who wrote Why I Am Not a Christian, said that as he neared death, the darkness that I have always feared is finally overtaking me. There is no justice. If you happen to be one of those whom fortune fills with tragedy, you just have to live as one of the losers. Could you imagine walking through life just going, I'm living as one of the losers? Not having hope. You don't have to live that way when you live in Jesus. When you live in Jesus, you live with life. Contrast that with Joni Ergus and Tata. She had a diving accident when she was a young child, paralyzed from the neck down. She says how sad she felt when she could see her friends who would walk and run and jump and swim and play. And then one day she caught herself envying people who knelt to pray. And then it occurred to her, she said, the first thing I'll do with my new legs is drop to glorified knees and worship Jesus who saved me. She said, then I'll do a backflip. That's the insurance of the resurrection. To know it all can become new. What, what are you hoping? What are you going to hope in when death overtakes you? It's amazing to go to a funeral of a Christian versus a funeral of a non-Christian. You go to a funeral of a Christian, it's filled with hope, it's filled with promise, it's filled with joy. You go to a funeral of a non-Christian and you sense the lostness and the hopelessness. Did you know that the resurrection and Cinderella have some things in common? Stop and think about that story. You're familiar with the story. Cinderella was a very beautiful girl, though she had been born in a privilege to a family who, who loved her deeply, was forced to live with the wicked stepmother who had two jealous sisters who turned her into a slave and made her feel real ugly. One night, her fairy godmother shows up, you know, gives her a dress and a pumpkin and carriage, and she goes off the ball where she experiences the love of the prince. It all seems to be how it should be, but then the clock hits midnight, and she is swept back into her old situation. We're familiar with the story. And all that is left that night is a glass slippers. She has one. And the prince has one. The best part of the story is that the prince never forgets her, though, and he won't rest until he's found her and brought her back to the palace. She goes house, so he goes house to house looking for her and trying to fit the glass slipper on the foot of the lady who it will fit until he finds her. The resurrection is just like that glass slipper. We live in a world under the influence of the wicked stepmother, Satan, the devil. We're oppressed by her two wicked stepdaughters, the, the world and, and our flesh, who constantly beat us up and tell us that we're worthless. But in the gospel, we meet the prince. 
And now we have the shoe, the resurrection that is God's promise that He's making us into what He will make us into as He returns for us. What do you do when the stepmother or stepsisters treat you poorly or make you feel worthless? You defy their lies with the glass slipper. You tell yourself in the resurrection that this dirty dungeon is not your home. The wicked stepmother and sisters are not your family. This drab experience is not your future because you are loved by the prince of princes, by the king of kings, by the lord of lords, by the great I am, cherished by him, and you know he's coming back for you. Faith has a starting point. A basis is the resurrection. The resurrection tells me that Jesus is who He says He is. And this is no big fairy tale. That He is making me into someone new and He's coming back for me. And He's coming back for you. In the Gospel of Luke, He wanted to summarize the Apostle's message. He wanted to summarize Jesus' message. He chose one word. The word resurrection. It covered everything covered absolutely everything. The resurrection is a gift to all who receive it. The resurrection is real, and the resurrection is a great gift to those who receive it. And I must let you know, church, you must receive it. You must. It's done. We must accept the gift. Now, maybe you've been in church for some time. There's people in churches across America who just go to church because they like the community, they like the friendship, they like the fellowship. Some people use it for business contacts. Some people use the church for all kinds of reasons and they hang out at the church and sometimes they float in and float out and we would never know that they're not a Christian unless they tell us that. But if you haven't received Christ, then you haven't accepted that gift. I want to ask you to do that today. I want to ask you to accept Jesus. See, when you receive this great gift... Scripture tells us what to do. It says you've got to believe, you've got to confess, you repent, and you're baptized. You're saying, well, I believe and I've confessed before, but have you been baptized? Have you opened up that gift completely? You say, is it really that important that I go through all that? Yeah, why? Because that's what the Scripture teaches us to do, and we want to be about what the Bible tells us to do. You say, well, I didn't come prepared today to get wet. I can promise you we have all the stuff ready for you. Today could be one of the best Easter's of your entire life if you commit your life to Christ and you tell the church, you know, I believe in Jesus and you confess Him as your Savior and you're baptized into Him. You say, well, I was baptized when I was a baby. My mom and dad did that for me. I say, that's great. You had parents who wanted to teach you about faith and they wanted you to be baptized, but that was the decision they made for you and a decision to follow Christ is a personal decision that you make to accept Jesus as your Savior. And so you can look at your mom and dad and say, thank you for planting seeds of faith, but I'm making my own decision to accept Christ as my Savior. So why not get baptized? We had a lady in first service who heard me say those exact words. She did not come prepared today to get baptized and give her life to Christ, but she said, today's my day. Today could be your day. We have the cross set up in the back of the room, and here's what I want to ask you to do. I want to ask you as we continue in worship here in a moment, our servers will bring communion to you. We'll continue singing. But if God is nudging your heart and you say, you know what, I need to put my faith in this hope, the resurrection of Jesus, meet me at the foot of the cross. Mia and one of our elders, Tim, we're going to stand back there at the foot of the cross and we're ready to help you accept Jesus as your Savior. Uh, I have somebody ready who's prepared to help you. We'll give you some clothes so you can keep your own clothes dry and go home and dry clothes. I'm going to ask you to share a simple confession. 
that you believe in Jesus as your Savior. And then we'll enter in this pool of water right over here. So you're going to be immersed and then you'll rise again. And that's doing just what Jesus did. Jesus walked on this earth. He was buried into a tomb. And then he rose again and then he ascended to be with his Father God in heaven. And Romans tells us that when we're buried in a watery grave, we walk on this earth. We're buried in a watery grave. We rise again and we have the hope that then at the second coming, the resurrection, we will then ascend just as Jesus ascended and be in heaven. And if we've done that, then we're promised to be with him. We'd love to do that with you. And here's what I'll promise you. This church loves to see people give their life to Christ. They love it. And just as the angels rejoice in heaven over just one who comes to Christ, we will celebrate and we will clap and we will cheer for you and be excited with you as you make that kind of decision. So I want to invite you today. Today could be your day to come to the foot of the cross and receive Jesus as your Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we must first say thank you. God, thank you that you conquered death for us. Thank you, God, that you gave us Jesus and you made the path and that Jesus paid the penalty, paid the price. He's paid the bill. He's he's done the time. He's taken care of all of our our challenges in the death and burial and the resurrection. Thank you. Thank you that it doesn't depend upon us and our goodness and us doing things right and us being perfect. Thank you, Lord, that even when we trip and we fall and we stumble and we mess up and we don't do things right and we deny you just like Peter did and we live lives that are sometimes broken and just all over the place, Lord, as long as our, our faith is in Jesus, the belief of the resurrection, that we know Jesus has paid the price. Father, I want to pray specifically for people in this room. Just felt really a, a strong call this week, Lord, for, to, to ask for people to make a decision. And so, Lord, I pray you would stir in some hearts and minds in this room today. Just as Samantha came first hour, Lord, there could be someone in this room today to come and say, it's my day, I need to accept Jesus. I need to believe in the resurrection and receive Jesus as my Savior. Father, we thank you as we partake in this time of communion and we receive these emblems that remind us of your death and your burial and your resurrection. We say thank you. I want to ask you in the quiet of this room just to have a few moments of prayer by yourself. We'll continue singing here in a moment. Communion will be served. But I want to ask you to just pray. Wrestle with where you're at with God. Today could be a decision to say thank you, God, for who you are. Today could just be a prayer of you just praying, God, I want to make a new commitment. God, today's a day of a new start. It could be today's a day I give my life to Jesus. I want to ask you just to pray. And then we'll continue in worship and just continue in communion. And if you want to give your life to Christ, just come to the foot of the cross. I'll meet you right at the foot of the cross and help you accept Jesus as your Savior.